Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. In January 2017, actor Bill Irwin created a show titled On Beckett for ACT, American Conservatory Theater. This interview first aired on Bookwaves on KPFA on January 12th. 2017. Bill Irwin, when did you first discover Beckett on your own? I was a student at UCLA in a decade so long ago. And in the anthology, from one of the courses I was taking, literature anthology, they had included Beckett's play, Act Without Words, number one. It's the first of his plays I ever encountered. And the interesting thing is, that's far, far from my favorite play now. But, man, did it catch me. And, of course, there's no spoken words in that. So it wasn't Beckett's almost natural kind of monologue-like construction or use of language that got me yet. It was stage directions in that play. Act Without Words is all stage directions. And the way he used words to describe action hooked me in a way. I've never done that play, and I don't know that I ever will, but all of his other plays especially his two greatest ones, just had a hold of me uh, ever since, as well as some of the prose pieces, some of the really well-known bits of Beckett prose, the novels, and these offbeat pieces called Texts for Nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I see them there on your page. Some Beckett readers and, and um, scholars are not so high on Texts for Nothing. And of course, Mr. Beckett himself said some deprecatory things about them once, but that doesn't mean much because he, he said deprecating things about all his work. They are hugely important to me. The texts for nothing pieces are kind of on the periphery of his, of his body of work, but they mean so much to me. And so, as you can see, I went down the slippery slope and I uh, never made it back up again. Beckett's language is just, it has a hold of me. It haunts me. You first performed Beckett on Broadway in 1988. In uh, You played Lucky in uh, Godot. That is right, and that's a world to go. I'd actually done that play, workshopped it at down at the Public Theater. Joe Papp, Joseph Papp, gave us a room and said, yeah, I'll turn, you know, if you guys can figure this play out, give it a try. And so some colleagues and I had worked with the play, but yes, the first time I was in a production, I started simple with Mike Nichols directing, Steve Martin and Robin Williams playing the two uh, main roles, and I played Lucky to F. Murray Abraham's Pazzo. What was it like working with all of them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a roomful. And then there was a wonderful young actor named Lucas Haas uh, who played the boy. So we were a collection. Guess who my understudy was? David Hyde Pierce. <laughs> and he and I have since talked recently about the Godot or the Godot play. And then, you know. He, oh, I was going to ask you about uh, that. What, you know, because I talked to other people about it. Is it Godot? Is it Godot? What did Beckett say? Here's the deal. Here's the debate. Americans usually say Godot. And I did for most of my working life with the play. But not so long ago, I did the play again on Broadway with Nathan Lane and John Goodman and uh, company. And 
We decided that we were going to say it the way the Brits and the Irish say it. So Mr. Beckett, uh, I'm not sure I ever heard him say the name of the play, but I presume he pronounced it Gado, like, you know, the, the English usually say, well, you know, your, your Gado play. Or the Irish say, your Mongado on his fancy play. Like, uh, they put the accent and the pronunciation that way. To Americans, sometimes that sounds a little too much nail on the head, like we're referring to God, and the play is so complex, and the character of Godot, as Samuel Beckett famously said, if I knew who he was, I would have told you in the play. But it is a resonant name and a resonant character, so lots of Americans feel they're better off with Godot, which sounds sort of more French. The play was written in French first. But we did decide finally to say Waiting for Godot because it makes the central joke and the central confusion of the play clearer, or so we felt. Are you going to be talking about this in the, in the show? I will be. You may hear it in my, uh, in my voice. Yeah. yeah, I live and breathe this stuff, and the debate between whether it's Godot or Godot can get cutthroat and personal, but in this part of my life, I'm calling him Godot that we're waiting for. Well, going back to that 1988 play, I don't want to let go of working with Steve Martin and uh, Robin Williams because these are two great improvisers. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you're an improviser in physical, but not verbally. But they're both improvisers verbally. How did they deal with limiting themselves, did they? They did indeed. And they didn't always get credit for it because they were so good. They looked wild and free. You know, it's interesting, Steve Martin's stand-up act at that time was one he did, and a famous uh, film director, Herb Ross, came to see it once, and then he came the next night and he said, I was almost disappointed because that was uh, Steve Martin doing the same thing. You know, he, he had built something to look like it was coming right off the cuff. Robin, same thing. He never violated the text. There were sections of the play where the stage directions call for general melee. And there, Robin, you know, took it wherever he wanted to take it on, on any given night. And some of, the, some of the people commenting on the production said, well, they're just playing free. Well, actually, they were playing free with Beckett's words, which you really can do when you immerse in them. You look at them on the page and they feel uh, sort of, at first, sometimes they feel heavy, like you, you, there's nothing you can do but kind of intone these words and chant them. They're actually really conversational, and they're, it's active language. So that's my job. Bill Irwin, what brought you to create this piece along with all your other work that you've already done on Beckett? I've acted in Beckett plays, and I hope to in the future. I was in Carrie Perloff's production of Endgame, and I need a rematch with that play. I've, I've done the... Production. Uh, oh, well, it's quite a play. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing it again, Carrie and I getting back to it again. The On Beckett evening that we're doing here at the Strand is something I just had to do because all these threads of text and uh, speeches and bits of language that I've immersed myself as an actor in over the years, I, I can't get free of them, and I wanted to share them, and I wanted to bring them together, and my thoughts, for whatever they're worth to anybody else, on Mr. Beckett's writings, bring it together in an evening. So that's how this short theater evening came about. 
the evening proper, the sharing of passages and some thoughts in between, and of course some changing of costumes because that's what that's what clowns do. That's the vaudevillian impulse is to try this with different clothes than that. And right. so that all lasted oh, sixty minutes between sixty and sixty-five. It's, it's not long. The, the individual passages are between three minutes and eight minutes too. Offer them up some thoughts, different costume. Offer them up another one. Then we'll take a break, and anybody who's had enough, you know, with our blessing, is free to to take off. Anybody who wants to stay, we're going to round out the evening with a little more Q and A discussion. You know, sometimes these conversations get beyond the reverential, and they get really down and dirty, and people start challenging each other and calling each other names. So the evening overall, even with that Q and A, is you know maybe ninety minutes, but the Offering up of these pretty short passages is a compact hour, and it's uh, got a lot of my life in it. And I'm, I'm really thrilled to be sharing it with San Francisco audiences again. I'm, I'm scared to death, but I'm looking forward to it. As I mentioned just before we walked into this room, when I went to Wikipedia, Wikipedia did not mention the relationship of Beckett to vaudeville, but you started out as a clown, Pickle Family Circus. And before that, of course, you knew Beckett. Was the connection obvious? And what in Beckett's history is about vaudeville? And bringing it back to you, where did you see your entry that way? Mm -hmm. Well, here's something interesting about Beckett and his family when you read the biographies and the letters. His letters are just the most amazing reading they went often to the Variety Theater in Dublin. You know, they knew musical artists by, by name, and I like him better than him, and that duo is wonderful. Listen, he was a huge literary mind. He was as learned as any 20th century writer. But he had a grounding in popular entertainment, in vaudeville, music hall. It was there, and anybody who misses that, I think, is just missing a huge thread. And... That's, for me, that's one clown portal away into his work. For one thing, he's a writer of the body. And that's a phrase that I'm borrowing from Kerry Perloff, who runs ACT. He's more things than you can ever sum up in a sentence or two. But his writing is a lot of different things. But part of it is a really acute rendering of the human body. And especially body position and body silhouette. Here's a, here's a stage direction from this famous play we've been talking about. Some people call it Godot, some people call it Godot, and blessings on everyone, however they say it. Here's one of my favorite stage directions. They stand motionless, arms dangling, heads sunk, sagging at the knees. Now that is really specific. That's like a vaudeville guy describing a particular comic. I mean, how do you do that? You know, it's really evocative. Yeah, I'm going to stand up. You stand up, you sink the head, you dangle the arms, you're still waiting, and the knees are sagging. It's, it's a really particular position, and it tells you a lot about the play and what he felt his character should be doing at that moment. Here's another stage direction. He goes feverishly to and fro, stage right to left. So it was like he saw it on a vaudeville stage almost. And, you know, one of the important things that should also be in the Wikipedia about 
about Samuel Beckett. Maybe we should get on online there and add these things. But he was born in 1906, so he came of age just as the film camera was having its huge impact on on the human mind. So he's a child of all that stuff, and you can feel his affinity to the silent films, even as he's doing long, long, talky, wordy things. You can still feel underneath there, there's a Chaplin-esque energy and appreciation that he's got. So I feel, anyway. That, that's my two cents. This a lot of directions on go, but I'm going to throw this out because it just came to my head. Yeah. You've also done Albie. There are connections between the absurdism and the texts of Beckett and Albie. Do you approach them in a similar manner? I think you do. Here's the first connection, is that Edward Albee was the hugest Samuel Beckett admirer. In fact, I think... We've lost Edward now, so I'll never know for certain. But I think that that's what put me as an actor on the casting radar is that uh, somebody said, well, you know, there's this actor, there's this actor, there's Bill Irwin. And my imagination is that uh, Edward Albee said, oh, he's done Beckett, hasn't he? If he's done Beckett, I'd like to hear him read the play. So that's how I got to audition for Edward Albee in his play The Goat. Now, in some ways, his play, The Goat, is as different as any two pieces could be from Beckett's work. But I've sat there in Edward's company where he was looking through Beck and he'd say, Look, a, a white horse. Now, that white horse appears elsewhere. He was, he was a total devotee of Beckett's writing. And uh, here's something that Mike Nichols said back in the day. He said, you know, uh, waiting for... He called it Godot at the time. Waiting for Godot and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, they're kind of the same story. They're two people talking, waiting. Two other people come and then they leave. It's, you know, there are only so many structures uh, dramatically in the world. So <laughs> that's, that's my big connection between the some of the biggest pieces of work in my life is that uh, Mike Nichols kind of found them the same play. Well, on some level, in both of them, nothing happens. Nothing happens, but when things are on, it's so engrossing, and there's a flash of violence that happens in the middle of each play, and nothing can ever be the same after that. It's true in Act One of Waiting for Godot. It's true in uh, Act Two of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. There's uh, a lot of talking, and then there's suddenly some physical action, and the relationships have been reordered, and things will never be the same as they were a, a few minutes earlier. Do you think there's a connection between them and Pinter? You know, I'm sure Carrie Perloff does because she is the Pinter queen. I don't know Pinter's work as well, but I do know that Pinter and Beckett corresponded a oh. lot. So I've heard Pinter sent his scripts to Samuel Beckett, you know, and they're very different pieces of writing, but he'd get something back and said, yes, I read the play, it's magnificent. I think you'll find your problem, maybe. And he'd <laughs> specifically name a place, and Pinter was apparently really eager to hear what Beckett had to say. Bill Irwin, defining the essence of Beckett, Ben Brantley, in talking about your 1990 text for nothing, said uncertainty, bizarreness, heroic, and yet, what you did in that play was you never tried to overanalyze because overanalyzing loses Beckett. It does. 
It does. Here's something that Joe Papp said a million years ago, and it really stayed with me. He said, yeah, try the play. You guys work with that play, Wedding for Godot. But, you know, you can't play philosophy. Just keep that in mind. You can't play philosophy. And here's the thing. If Beckett's plays or his writing asked you to play philosophy, if that's all there was, we wouldn't still be looking at it. It's really active. It's an argument inside each human head. And interestingly enough, here's here's some of my two cents energy lately. The physical anthropologists and the psychologists, sort of cutting-edge stuff now, they're looking at the human consciousness as a conversation or an argument between different voices, and that, that maybe that's how human consciousness evolved. Hmm. It's like, uh, do this. No, oh, don't do that. Let's think about it first. Hey, yeah, well, no, you should. You should go get that piece of food. No, just stay right here. You're safer. You know, that early, like, uh, mammalian and even reptilian minds are full of, do this. No, don't do that. And that's still the way we operate. And that's what you hear in Beckett's writing. Well, you hear it a lot in Endgame. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I think Beckett is really, he holds the mirror up to nature on how the mind argues with itself, the me, myself, and I of our consciousness, our dealing with ourselves and each other. Beckett was Irish, but he wrote in French. A friend of mine, not putting down any American versions of Gatto or Endgame, remarked that he wondered if maybe the Irish had a special in to being able to perform Beckett that the rest of us don't. Is that true? I think it has been. Uh, and he's a countryman, so he'll always uh, come out of their mouths with a certain uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A certain like primary source. This is a sort of primary source feeling. But I think uh, there are more and more American, and there are more and more interpretives of Beckett all over the world. Here's the thing: he's becoming a, an international literary voice in even in translation i think he would probably have had trouble imagining his own work in japanese and chinese but it's happening it's out there he's a he's an international voice and it's uh, part of the job i perceive for myself and, and other fellow americans is to see what kind of an american voice hmm. there is with beckett one of the one of the short passages in the on beckett evening i'm trying with a boston accent I'm just t- taking a look at it that way. And another piece, I don't mention this to the audience, but another piece, I just think of it as, what if this came to me? I'm in many ways a television actor lately, uh, making my living in television so I can afford to work in the theater. And uh, so you get scripts on pretty short order, you know, like, here, here's this TV script. Can you handle it? Would you do it? Would you audition for it? Would you be able to shoot it tomorrow, you know? And so you, it quickens your impulses and it, it sharpens up your, uh, your tools. And I think, okay, what if I just got this speech faxed to me? That dates me. I'm talking about facts. You know, what, what if I received this speech and uh, if I had to put it on camera tomorrow? What would your character actor Im- uh, tools and impulse, how would they attack this? And it holds up. Man, this writing holds up to any approach you want to. You want to give it. So an American voice on Beckett, is uh, that's part of our job, we Americans. You met him. I met him very briefly right toward the end of his life in Paris. You know, he's an incredibly gracious uh, and shy man in many ways. I was so petrified and shy, I couldn't take my eyes off the table. I noticed 
though I, I relaxed enough to notice that, oh my Lord, he's also shy. We're sort of not knowing what to say to each other. And of course, he was busy. He had thousands of people who wanted to sit at this little table with him. I did for about 20 minutes, and I could shoot myself now that I didn't have better questions to answer. I, I know his writing so much better now than I did in 1987 when I sat in Paris with him. The, the meeting had been set up by a wonderful man of the theater, Mel Gusso, who's no longer with us. He wrote about the theater, and he just was a networker like this. He said, I, I know Samuel Beckett. Would you like to meet him in Paris? And of course, my, <laughs> I didn't know what to say for, for several minutes. I sat there and I sort of asked him about the Godot play and this and that. We talked about Irish politics, because I had just come from Northern Ireland, where there had been some, uh, some disturbance. And I thought, wow, he's a theater guy. He is a theater guy. I said, uh, uh, this play is difficult for producers, talking about act without words, number one. And it's difficult for producers because it's so short and compact. He said, mm, perhaps a curtain raiser. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is a theater guy. Among all the other things he is, is sort of mega novelist and uh, hyper literary writer, Nobel Prize winner. He's a guy who thinks in terms of if you have an evening of theater, what you start with and what you finish with. And so it was an incredible meeting. I could just shoot myself now that I didn't. I hadn't yet read texts for nothing. Boy, could I ask him about those pieces of writing. I have, by the way, a wonderful guy named Joe Chaikin, a New York man of the theater, Joseph Chaikin, to thank for, for meeting up with these pieces of writing called Texts for Nothing. And they really did change my way of experiencing language and my storytelling impulses. Like I said earlier, not everybody is crazy about texts for nothing, but I love the pieces. They're huge in my life. Bill Irwin, you mentioned politics. Is there some kind of underlying political structure that, that our perception of Beckett changes as the political structure changes? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm not sure how to approach that question. I'm going to work on it, but I'm going to say this. Beckett is so many different things. We often, you know, we pigeonhole people because it's a, it's a human need to sort of get a handle on things. He cannot really be reduced. You're never going to summarize his work or reconcile all his contradictions or, mm. or reduce him to a system of reading. He has so many things, and among them is he's a writer, a moral writer, in these plays, these seemingly abstract plays, they're full of citizenship questions like, well, here's a line from Waiting for Gado. Vladimir says, Was I sleeping while the others suffered? Am I sleeping now? Tomorrow when I wake or, or, or think I do, what shall I say of today? Now that, you know, that sounds like a, a call to action at a political barricade in a way. But it's also a a sort of treatise on the complexity of human consciousness. It's also, it's so many things at the same time. But here's the waiting for Godot play. Two guys talking, and yes, it's a kind of a metaphysical vaudeville in a way sometimes, and sometimes they seem to be circling, getting nowhere. And then two other guys enter the play, and the big one is driving the small one with a whip, mm -hmm. and he's got him on the end of a rope. And suddenly we're in a whole different territory. He's holding up the mirror to nature about 
all kinds of aspects of human relationships. So, you know, Beckett is so many things. Among them, he's a deeply moral writer posing really challenging ethics questions to all of us. You played two of the roles in uh, Gardot. Do you ever think about playing the other two? All the time. All the time, yes. Sometimes I think, uh, uh, well, I had a conversation with a, a wonderful actor, a friend of mine, and I said, if you were playing Vladimir, because this is just a guy who should be Vladimir, I just, I didn't quite say it out loud, but I thought, what, how about if I was playing Estragon on the other side of that equation? Because yeah. I've played Vladimir a couple of times. And then I've thought, Maybe because I'm getting a more and more particular vision of the character Pazzo, maybe I should try Pazzo sometimes, sometime. <laughs> and I'd love to work with a young actor who would play Lucky so that we could work out physical bits because one of the things that happens, uh, Pazzo and Lucky are master-servant. They're also all kinds of other things, but Pazzo really uh, commands him like a beast of burden. It's a human relationship that has that in it, like we see in life. And uh, if you choreograph and could work out, especially maybe with a harness so that the actor playing Lucky could really be flung across the stage. I mean, this is, these are the kinds of theatrical ideas that I just stay with me all the time about uh, all of... Beckett's plays. Yeah, I got to play every one of those characters one of these days. You're coming up on a new show, a TV show called Legion, which is very different, I guess, from the... Uh, oh, yeah. I'm joyously, I mean, it's a wild ride, but I'm joyously a TV actor, character actor out there doing lots of different kinds of work. And I have a role in this new FX series called Legion, which is so wild and wiggy. The New York Times just called it one of the shows to watch, but they also said it's, it's a little bit hard to follow in the first episode. It is a, a really wonderful, many levels at once, look at a story that is kind of based in the Marvel Comics world, but goes all kinds of directions with that as a beginning. Bill Irwin, you're doing your two TV shows. What else do you have on tap? Uh, Sesame Street, that's, that's, uh, that's another TV show that I'm very proud of being part of. This character, Mr. Noodle, who, who has a Samuel Beckett-esque uh, uh, quality sometimes. Mr. Noodle is a wonderfully affable guy who the kids are just better than he is at, at how you do things. So he's forever being instructed by kids on the show. Like, that's not a telephone, that's a banana, Mr. Noodle. Oh, yeah, I got the difference. And it's... Sounds kind of almost silly when you talk about it like this, but it hits kids in a deep way. One of the really smart writer producers on Sesame Street, Arlene Sherman, came up with this idea where kids need to reach out and help a grown up get things done. It seems to reach kids in a way, you know, I've been doing it long enough now, so you, sometimes on the street, it's deep voice, because yeah, I'm a lawyer now, but I really used to watch uh, Mr. Noodle. <laughs> 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 I used to think about being in this business a long time. I guess the final question is um, getting to Beckett again after this. Do you have any plans or just speculations at this point? Well, plans, speculations, they kind of amount to the same thing in this business because you're always, you don't know what you're doing next. You're just hoping. Yeah, I hope that I get to return to work with Kerry Perloff on Endgame. I need a rematch there. 
And I'll do Waiting for Godot as many times as any director, producers uh, want to do it. And uh, the texts for nothing are these pieces of writing that won't let me alone. So I'll be uh, looking at those for the rest of my life, looking at how they might be used on stage. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm -hmm.